reality is I feel bad because of what I put Danielle through. Nearly a dozen years have passed since Stephen Kaplan found himself flying off his powerful motorcycle and landing with a sickening thud on an isolated road in the middle of nowhere in the Yukon Territories. The business executive had hit a pothole, and in the accident, he'd broken his spine and damaged his heart. He was in excruciating pain, but he couldn't move, and he was badly injured and alone in the heart of grizzly bear territory. Kaplan had taken plenty of solo extreme motorcycle trips before. He was a lifelong adventurer, even though it made his wife Danielle sick with worry back home in Toronto. But in July of 2011, at the age of 54, Kaplan had promised before he left to ride to Alaska and back alone that this would be his last trip. And it was, thanks to what his family now calls a series of miracles which today means he's alive and well and enjoying retirement at age 66, but still living with the guilt of what he put his family through. And it was rough. He nearly died. He needed multiple operations, months in hospitals in Vancouver and then Toronto. He had to learn to walk again and to talk. Now the Kaplan story is out in a new book, which Danielle wrote. It's called I Married a Thrill Seeker, about her own struggle to help her husband recover. We, we, the kids and I say that he has nine lives and he um, does everything with such strength, determination and speed. I'm Ellen Besner and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News sponsored by Metropia. The Kaplans met and married in their native South Africa, and Steve was always into extreme sports. He was fascinated by the road movies that British performers Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman made about their three motorcycle trips around the world. The issue was even a wedge in the Kaplans' marriage. They went to counseling because Danielle was petrified something would happen to him. In her career as a speech-language pathologist in hospitals, she'd seen firsthand what accident victims had to go through. In their new book, Danielle admits she made a threat when Steve left for his trip, and it's a threat I've made myself. If anything happens to you, I will kill you. The Kaplans join me now from their home in Toronto. Hi, Ellen. Lovely to be here with you to talk about our story. Hi. Good morning. How did you come up, or how was the title thought up? Whose idea was that? Yeah, so interesting. So it went through different stages. When I first started this, I wasn't actually sure that I was writing a book to publish. And I just called it Despite the Odds because in every aspect of this book, there were so many odds that Stephen overcame. And then we realized that that was a more common name. And then I thought, oh, he's the invincible man. There's nothing that stops this man. So we were going to call it the invincible man. And then my wonderful publisher, Rebecca Eckler from Rebooks and Deanna, the editor, both said to me, you know, this, even though you think you're writing Steve's story, it's actually not. It's your story. It's from your perspective and it's your story. So we need to change it to be a book about your story. And therefore the title needs to reflect that. And so we added in, I married a thrill seeker, which we knew would sort of interest people, but it's really a cautious wife's memoir, myself, of her husband's risk-taking behaviors, risk-taking and, and our long or their long journey to recovery. 
And Stephen, how did you feel about that title? Because there's so many different connotations and maybe not all positive about it. Well, I've got no approval rights on anything. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Danielle's description of how we, uh, we eventually got there, or she got there with the book title, I think is, is correct. Um, firstly, a risk taker doesn't think they're risk takers. I think that's, that's the biggest problem that we have is that we just think it's normal. But it, it was a good title for the book because it, I think it elicits quite a lot of conversation. Did you, how did you navigate what to leave in and what to leave out? So as not to completely, you know, tell everything, maybe there's some things people shouldn't know, you know? So Steve is the most generous human being I know, and he gave me full uh, permission to add in whatever I wanted, even if it put him not in the most perfect light, which he likes to be perfect. So he said, it's your story, your book. You write whatever you want. He did read an early draft. Believe it or not, despite this book, we actually are a very private family, my children, Stephen. And here we are fully exposing who we are, how we cope, our emotions, and some of the concepts that maybe we hadn't really discussed out in the open before. When Steve read this, when did this actually get into the sort of shaped into a manuscript? When did you actually see this, Stephen? The first draft, um, what, three, four years after the accident. Um, now, part of my, my, the way I cope with things, I put everything in, in, in a closet and I forget about it. So each time I read it, that first time I read it, it was tough because, I, you know, you just try hard things or ignore things. And then more recently, I read close to final version of it as well. Um, Excellent reads, if I can say so myself, but pretty tough for me. I had to stop part where, in fact, I haven't read the final book version just because it's, you know, I, I mean, it'll be fine. I'll read it, but um, it's just the way I cope. I would worry that this would be triggering for you to have to talk about it when people like me interview you all over again. It, you know, it's not for me when I, when I read it and that in, in the real bad parts, it's, it's really, I think, a feeling of guilt of what did I put Dundell and the family through rather than what happened to me because you know, my side was my side. So um, I think that's more the impact that it has on me. Um, nothing really gets easier because there's always was that guilt of what I put Danielle through. I mean, it was three, four, six months of dropping every single thing that she did and you know, flying out to Vancouver for quite a while and then in Toronto and then thereafter. So you, know, you, don't, you can't forget that that easily. Now, we are the Canadian Jewish News. So I have to bring up, is this sort of a Jewish angle? I didn't see there was much religion or praying or Chabad people coming to help you in Vancouver. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and I wondered if any, did you have any help from sort yes. of your faith? Yes. At all. Interesting you say that. So they were rabbis at the hospital, Vancouver Hospital, and they would come and visit Stephen and I all the time and be of comfort um, so that was really valuable. Um, we also have a lot of support here. We, we had people praying from all different religions, all different walks of life all over the world because we networked all over. Um, and there was one very soft kind of Jewish thing. I don't know if anyone picked it up, but we're a family who follows traditions and we have a wonderful tradition that the entire 
group of family, which is siblings and cousins get together on the final Friday of the month, irrespective of anything. It was, I think it's only COVID that threw us off. Um, we still had our Friday night dinner when we came back to Toronto. We, we booked through my sister and the sister-in-law and social worker, we booked a little room and we ordered in and we had our Shabbat Friday night dinner in a hospital patient family uh, treatment room. And Steve still looked like he had a, the, the look of the deer in the headlights. He wasn't quite coping in his wheelchair and all of his ivy poles, but it was a really comforting thing that everybody came together and we had our Friday night dinner and we did not give it up despite the trauma we'd been through. Mm-hmm. And Steve, did this accident at all make you more religious or less religious or praying more? I don't know how one goes through this. Sometimes they say there's no atheists in foxholes. I've heard that expression in wartime. Danielle and I are both very scientific driven. You know, one plus one equals three. And um, that that guides a lot of just how we, we think. So as we said, we're traditional. And coming out of this, I actually felt pretty guilty. And, and we had a very good friend of ours who got sick and died. And a lot of it made me say, well, why her and not me? We have a continuum in our family from all the way across the range of religion to strictly orthodox to more traditional, less religious, right through siblings. So, you know, some people believe that he was saved by their praying and by that response and others like we tend to think more circumstances. I think it was more his strong body, um, the, the medical science, the doctors, the brilliant Canadian healthcare system that we have. And even though I know some people are maybe critical, we are, we believe Canadian healthcare are heroes. And without it, Steve would not have survived in another country. And in the book is a, is a medical a procedure called ECMO. And had we not be, had he not been airlifted specifically to Vancouver General Hospital, he would never have been given ECMO and he would not have survived. ECMO, we just should say what it is. So ECMO is a extra life support system. It's called um, uh, extracorporeal membranous oxygenation. And if I give the best way of explaining it, when a preemie baby is born very early on and their lungs and heart haven't developed, they need this extra form of, um, of um, support to allow their lungs and heart to develop so it does the work of the lungs and heart. If you're an adult and your mortality is 80-90%, they only give this to people who are severely, critically ill. It's life-saving. They've used it during COVID for people with severe lung disorders, disease. The amazing thing with Steve, usually the outcomes are really poor. It's unpredictable. And um, so he's an extremely lucky man. What it did, because Steve went into complete organ failure, multi-organ failure, his lungs, his heart, his liver and kidneys all stopped functioning. So he was as critically ill as one could ever be. And they gave him a couple of hours just by bagging him through oxygen through his mouth, through a, um, a tracheal, uh, endotracheal tube. 
they bagged him in order to keep him alive. So he would have actually just passed away over the next couple of hours. So by putting him on ECMO gave his heart and lungs time to rest. And that typical in this style, he got through ECMO and is really quite efficiently and came off it, which was something we could never predict. Do you have insurance for this? It must have cost a fortune. Well, a lucky yes. I had, I had uh, insurance through work and I think that covered the medivacs. The rest is all um, government, you know, funded. So lucky from that. And as Daniel said, had I been in the States, we would have been bankrupt firstly and we wouldn't have been able to afford just the ECMO in itself, which is all covered. I wanted to ask you about the reaction so far to your book from people who've been, it's out now a couple of months. Yeah, so I was nervous getting the book out because I was like, what are people going to think? So you've got two groups. You've got the people who know you and sort of know the story and then those who don't and it's completely new to them. So those who knew us, first of all, the word that, and I mean, I, I sound like I'm promoting the book, but the word that everybody I'm uses, <laughs> the word that everybody uses is compelling and I couldn't put it down. That is like the first sentence most people write. The other thing that people who know us kept saying, honestly, I didn't know it was so bad. I didn't know it was so intense. I feel so bad we could have been there for you. And we, we said, no, but you were. The other thing is there's so many, there's so many things in it because people said, oh my God, I realize how important patient advocacy is because without Steve having me as his patient advocate and my background is healthcare. I was a speech pathologist working in trauma, neurosurgery, spinal. So in fact, Steve became my patient, which was then a coping mechanism for me. So that was a big message that people would say, I realize how important that is. The other thing is I knew how to be, and I'm going to stress the word valuable, a valuable caregiver. I knew exactly what to do. So for example, I had seen patients sitting with their mouths not clean, sitting in wet bedding, only because nursing staff or other are so busy. I knew that I was not going to allow that to happen. So I at all costs maintained his dignity and I hoarded linens and I ran around getting caps to shampoo his hair and I made sure that he was as clean and dignified even when he wasn't aware of it. So that's how to be and put up pictures of what he looked like prior to the accident. So he was treated as a person and not someone lying in a bed in a blue hospital gown. I also learned that when in crisis, you can live only in the moment. So that was another message through the book. It's very hard to go back and to dwell and to ask the questions why, because you can't answer them. It's very hard to look forward and say, this is what the outcome is because it's unpredictable, it's unknown. So you have to live in the moment, step by step, hour by hour, breath by breath. And another big message was how people stepped up for us. And so people responded to that. And if you have family, siblings, friends who walk the walk, step up, measure up, it's a huge thing to have a support system. And what about then, some negative reactions, though? People would have had some 
unkind things to say, like, what the hell were you thinking? Or you're so selfish. <laughs> or how could you do this? Honestly, I'm sure yes. you've heard that. So- oh, I've, I've heard all of those things through the grapevine. <laughs> but uh, no, and they write. They write. I mean, those are the, exactly the issues that Danielle and I, well, Danielle had, you know, why would I go in that? Um, and they write. But we haven't heard, you know, those, 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 those comments were made years ago. In fact, after the accident. Um, less so now with the book, but people do say, you know, he, in fact, one of the interviews that Danielle uh, had uh, made out that I was quite a selfish guy. And I got a little bit, up, I got a little bit upset with that because, uh, but he was probably right. So the truth is, it's a lot of the interviewers have asked that very direct question: is what would make you choose to take risks? not looking at the consequences when you have a family, when you have a wife, what would make you choose that? So those are tough questions for me to respond to and for Steve to have to deal with. So I think it's more coming from the interviewers. Maybe everybody's just, who knows us, is trying to um, be kind and supportive of the book. <laughs> but but when you take risks, when, and firstly, I don't think I'm a risk taker, but... I might have been labeled that. And part of it is you can't think that you're a risk taker. You always got to do things and you, you assume that they're calculated risks, that you can manage them. And that's how, that's part of that adrenaline rush. But you're not going out there to take crazy, crazy risks. I mean, stuntmen do and things like that. So I think it's just really a matter of perception and how you define it. But of course, everything you do has a risk associated with it and some are way more riskier than others. You could get hit by, you could get stabbed on the TTC. Well, or at a subway station. Unfortunately, yeah. Not at a school. Can we kind of define what a sensation seeker is? Because I think that's important to clarify. Because I'll put it this way. I think everybody either is a sensation thrill seeker, knows a sensation seeker, thrill seeker, or has... Or is like me, and maybe you risk adverse. So I am like I walk the moderate road, and risks give me the chills and make me anxious. So really, what is a sensation seeker or risk seeker? It's someone who seeks out and thrives on these new, unique, novel sensations, and they're different for different people. Challenges for Steve, I think it's speed and endurance are what he thrives on. And the more he can do, the more he does. And I always believe no matter what the outcome, you can never take the thrill out of the seeker. Even if it's a modified version, it's brain chemistry. It's who you are. The person has no fear. And you've got to have no fear to be able to do these things. It's just worth saying we did go for therapy to try and understand each other on this point, And it's described in the book. Um, we didn't come to a outcome that was good for both of us. We, we just kind of compromised. It seems, though, that your marriage has withstood traumas that would have most people not stayed together uh, after this had happened. So how many years now are you married? A very long time. I had to work it out the other day. <laughs> My children are growing adults. We've been married 39 years. I was a child bride. I was a teenager. <laughs> but... You know what? I I look at it this way from my point of view. Steve is not only my husband, but he is my family. And perhaps immigration is a fact of that, is we came here pretty young, just the two of us, 
and we grew up together and we 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 not only rely on each other but <clears throat> what i think holds us together is we have the same moral compass we have the same political points of view and we have the same value system and for that despite all the odds despite the traumas despite the invincible man despite the thrill seeking those are very important um, characteristics in our marriage if that's the right word that really holds us together steve did you want to weigh in on this um no i think we are we, we are completely attuned the way we think uh, politically socially maybe not in our choice of tv shows but <laughs> <laughs> we won't get into that we always talk about <laughs> but, music i like more country folk yeah. and he's more of a rock and roll <laughs> but generally we're both compassionate we both think of people ahead of ourselves so we should actually quickly before we end talk about the device that saved yeah. your life yep so when i used to do my trips um it's a, a, a small little like walkie talkie unit and it's called it's called the spot and what it is it's a gps transmitter so it would send a signal every 20 minutes uh, up up to satellites and it had three uh separate buttons that would control it one was i could manually push a button and that would set a preset message to um, danielle and i would say i'm okay and would give coordinates the other feature was that it every 20 minutes it would set up a signal and my friends could actually track via a map on the internet they could track exactly my route where i was going and then the third button the most important that's the most important feature why you really get it is it's connected to an emergency center in the states and if uh, an event happens like for example for myself where i had an accident you get mountaineers you get hikers you get anybody going on their own or in a small group if they carry this and something happens you press that emergency button and what it does is sends a signal to the emergency center they've already got my details my emergency contacts etc and if you press that they will automatically call those numbers it's not a walkie talkie it's not a um, cell it's gps so it's, it can be used in any remote area anywhere where gps can get access which is around the world and from there they would contact the uh, emergency contacts and decide what to do i don't know if we have time but this is probably one of the reasons i wrote the story the most miraculous thing happened and i'm going to just describe it it is in the book um so steve normally would have this on his backpack and for some on his body and for some reason this this last trip he put it on a metal bracket on the front of his handlebars. So Steve was driving on a very remote gravel road in dusk in remote Yukon where we had this solo accident. He hit a pothole, flew up in the air. The bike carried on driving on its own with due to this acceleration about 60, 70 feet into very thick terrain in the bush. Steve flew up in the air. was thrown up and landed on his side broke his spine and damaged his heart so he was immobile on this very remote road where he hadn't seen a human being 
or a car for hours, for miles. There were no structures and he was in grizzly bear territory. The amazing spot, um, sort of GPS, uh, radio, I don't know what you call, like um, walkie-talkie uh, equipment, broke off the bracket. So all the contents on his bike sort of scattered around the bike. Some things flew up in the air, landed closer to him. But this heavy, and it's not like this heavy GPS uh, uh, spot, flew, broke off the bracket, flew up in the air 60 feet and landed within his reach. So if you think about what are the odds of that ever happening, that's like winning the lottery of life. And all he had to do was stretch out his arm and pull it towards him, not realizing that he'd actually hit the lottery of life. So he could press the call button and he did so twice. And that is one of the most miraculous things. So when you talk about what was that? Was that luck? Was that divine intervention? Was that, who knows? We, we can't explain it, but that was the most miraculous. And then another miraculous thing happened along the way. He was found by a truck driver who wasn't meant to be on the road at that time. But the spot is what enabled me to be contacted. And of course, the emergency center who then asked me, should they dispatch the RCMP and the paramedic ambulance to him? And they had said, I'll end on this note. They're on their way, but they are at least a couple of hours, an hour and a half at least away from finding him. You could buy this at like Mac or something. Where did you, or did you order yeah, it? I think I originally got it, uh, yeah, at Mountain Equipment Co-op. Um, and they've got different versions now, but yes. Any, anybody who's going to go on solo expeditions or, as I said, small groups should always take something like this because you never know what can happen. To learn more about the book and where to get it, I've put the link to the couple's website, imarriedathrillseeker.com, in our show notes. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Yosef Robinson in Montreal, who wrote in about the episode we did Wednesday about the Belneige Ski Resort and the impact of climate change on snowfall levels. And that's it for the CJN Daily this week. The Daily is produced by Zachary Kaufman. Executive producer is Michael Freeman. Music is by Dov Beck-Levine. And if you like what you hear, please share the episode with a friend. And please follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you can get the show automatically sent to your devices every day. The link on how to do that is also in the show notes. Talk to you next week.